Attention developers, this summer, join the worldwide developer community in Berlin for the We Are Developers World Congress. From July 26th to 28th, experience over 300 speakers on 12 stages, outdoor activities, parties, and more. Use discount code STACKOVERFLOW for 20% off your ticket at worldcongress.dev. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan, editor of our blog, maestro of our newsletter, and Carnegie Mellon University alumni. Ryan, you recently went to a big anniversary, right? Didn't you? Just went to my uh, 25th reunion where I got to connect with some some folks, including today's guest, Marshall Hebert, Dean of the, the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon. Very cool. Well, Marshall, I'm glad you and Ryan connected and welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Very nice to meet you, uh, Ben. I, I met Ryan at uh, the, the celebration that he uh, was at, and uh, it's very nice to see you today. So take us back a little bit. What was your entry into the world of, of computer science? Well, I actually started in uh, math originally. As you can tell, I'm not from Pittsburgh originally, <laughs> so I started in math uh, somewhere else. Uh, okay. And then I got into uh, computer science for my uh, PhD, my doctorate looking at uh, research in uh, computer vision. In fact, one of the first systems for uh, 3D object recognition. And then I came here as a postdoc a long time ago (laughs) in 84. And in fact, that was as part of the very first program that DARPA sponsored on what is now self-driving. It was not called self-driving at the time, of course. It was autonomous vehicles. The name of the program was ALV, Autonomous Land Vehicles. We uh, had built at CMU a very large Chevy truck because equipped with cameras, computers on board and all this. And you can imagine, given the date, how uh, clunky the whole thing was, but it was the uh, right. early research in those, those topics. And then I stayed in the Robotics Institute all, all my career after that, working in computer vision. Very cool. Ryan obviously went to CMU, but I have a little bit of cross paths, I think, with that in some ways. When I was a reporter at The Verge, I did a big story about Velodyne and their LIDAR, which was born out of the DARPA challenge, uh, which they had won one year, and then that went on to create you know, this entire LIDAR company sort of based on that success, it became kind of integral to uh, computer vision for autonomous vehicles. And then my first job after I was a journalist, I actually worked at the drone company, DJI, which you know those drones obviously have a lot of computer vision and obstacle avoidance. And uh, one of the people that I worked with there ended up going to CMU. I think he was getting his PhD there after joining DJI in China. So mm-hmm. yeah, definitely a very well-known school, especially in those areas and something that I came across in my right. career as well. Yeah. In fact, as a side comment, since you were interested in the Velodyne, uh, if you come to CMU, I will show you a historical piece, which is what we call the uh, ARIM rangefinder, which was the very first laser depth sensor the, the mm. uh, ancestor of what you see on the Velodyne and other similar sensor. And that was in 86. It was measuring 64 rows, 256 columns, so 16,000 points, twice a second. Uh, now, it's millions of points, of course, but remember that was 1986. Mm-hmm. So that was the first uh, sensor. There were only two copies of that sensor, one at CMU, one at what is now Lockheed Martin. And I think we have the only one left. Oh, very cool. I'm actually out in California. I was here for Apple's WWDC event, and they're ready for the next era, which apparently is spatial computing. <laughs> I guess we'll see. But uh, they're 
headset has a LIDAR on the bottom and it's able to see your hands and kind of understand where you are in space. So that stuff is becoming more and more mainstream uh, or more and more integrated into consumer technologies, I should say. Yeah, and in fact, uh, the 3D uh, processing is kind of what I uh, worked on, at least at the beginning of, of uh, when I was at CMU. So that's what I did as a researcher, and then I became uh, head of the uh, robotics, which is one of our seven departments in the, in the school, and finally uh, dean. Somebody has to do it. I guess. Right, right. <laughs> Might as well be you, right? So uh, I took a few computer science classes back in my day, Fundamentals 1 and 2 and, and AI, and those were taught in Java. And I think it was like really, really early, maybe the first ones taught in Java. Can you talk about how the computer science program has changed over the years? Yeah, it has uh, changed in, uh, first of all, in the languages, of course, that are, that are used and, and, and taught, including Python and other, uh, other things. And it has evolved to include still the fundamentals. In other words, mm-hmm. the, the classes that you, that you mentioned, uh, of course, have evolved, but the spirit is still uh, there to have the strong fundamental in terms of the uh, theoretical uh, underpinnings of computer science, which we believe are uh, essential to move forward with the more applied aspects. A lot of new courses, a lot of uh, new offerings in new disciplines that have been at the edge of computer science. So AI, for example, but machine learning, human-computer interaction, many other disciplines that have, that have evolved over time around computer science. So a lot more diverse uh, set of offerings than, than when you were there. You have the, uh, the Software Engineering Institute now as well. Does that have a, a different mission or domain from the, uh, the computer science school? Yeah, the, the SCI is a completely different uh, mission. It's uh, what is called the uh, FFRDC, Federally Funded Research and Development Center. I remember all those acronyms, you know. <laughs> uh, and yes, it, it's a completely different entity, which is basically a standalone research organization separate from, from the School of Computer Science. Now, we do have joint projects and activities, in particular in uh, AI and cybersecurity, but it is mm. a, separate, a separate organization at CMU. I saw an article recently saying that, in the United States at least, among students who are applying to college and you know going on to maybe a master's or a PhD, increasingly they're opting for the sciences and for technology over humanities. In the time that you've been working at CMU, have you noticed a shift in what students are interested in and sort of when they arrive, do you find that they are particularly conversant or interested in pursuing certain technologies having grown up more as you know digital natives? Well, certainly, uh, in fact, this is reflected in the uh, increase in the uh, amount of uh, teaching that we do at the School of Computer mm. Science uh, across campus. Uh, we basically uh, service the, the entire campus and now uh, the amount of teaching has increased dramatically. So that's an uh, illustration, basically, of what you just said, the interest. Uh, uh, and, and more recently, a lot of interest, uh, not surprisingly, none of that is, is really surprising, in AI and machine learning. And again, from right. across campus, not just uh, students in the um, most directly uh, STEM field, but across, across campus. Right. Well, the, the English and history professors want to know how they can detect which essays are written by AI. Are you <laughs> helping them with that? 
Yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a lot of experimentation going on on campus on how to uh, deal with those new technologies. Uh, not necessarily right. in the sense of detecting and prohibiting and you know, that kind of thing, but in terms of using it and, and maybe mm-hmm. seeing in a more positive fashion how we can embrace it and, and use it in a, in a positive in a positive way. Now, this is very much a work in progress, like everywhere else, but that's definitely a direction that we that we're going. Are there any courses that are that are sort of new to the past few years that that didn't exist before? The, the sort of like the ones that have changed with the changing technology. Well, one set of courses. It's not just one course, but one set of courses that certainly has. Um, become prevalent over the past 10 years, let's say, but certainly accelerating are courses that have to do with ethics and impact mm. and uh, alignment of technology. All of those different topics having to do basically not about the technology itself, but about the impact of the technology. This is, of course, a requirement now in uh, all of our programs. So this is another difference, by the way, from when you were uh, there, that those ethics-related courses are now uh, required across the board. Uh, so that's one mm. one area, certainly, that uh, is, is becoming uh, much more uh, important, uh, and that's good, of course. So that's one certainly one, one example of that. I think that's really interesting you point that out. You know, there's been obviously a lot of discussion in the news about, you know, what is the potential impact of AI and to what degree it should be regulated. And it's striking to me that in, you know, those companies, they began often or have been working for a long time with people who are doing ethics, you know, impact, bias testing, you know, red testing. When I was in college and social media was becoming, you know, sort of the most the dominant emerging technology, nobody was talking about that stuff. It was just, here it is, you know, it's out in the wild and it's going to grow. Mm-hmm. So it definitely feels as though people understand now that with technology at internet scale and speed, that's something you need to have kind of baked in. So interesting, you also have that baked into the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just in the uh, educational uh, curriculum, it's also in the uh, research. We have uh, several important uh, centers, initiative across campus, uh, responsible AI and, and other mm-hmm related initiatives. And the important thing and the, and the really big challenge to me is not just to look at, uh, in general terms, the uh, impact and thinking about, you know, regulation, guardrails and things like this. But the real challenge is to look much more deeply into the, into the technical aspects, mm. right? What does it mean really in terms of the design of an architecture or, or a uh, training uh, schedule, or mm-hmm. etc., uh, setting parameters and so forth. Uh, so, can we say things that are much more uh, formal? Can we develop things that uh, have some theoretical uh, aspects? Let me, let me give you one example. One of our faculty member, Nihar Shab, looks at one particular type of uh, AI system, and those are the ones that use as input as data human-generated evaluation data. So think about ratings, think about peer review, uh, think about even in the medical domain, you know, questionnaires, you know, medical questionnaires, things like this. Those are all sure. uh, human generating evolution data. And the problem with that data is that it's very biased because we're all biased, of course. Sure. Uh, it's uh, imperfect. It has all kinds of, uh, you know, defects in, in the data. And this has to be taken into account explicitly in the design of machine learning system. It's not something that you can do after the fact, 
you know, trying to test it and figuring out the impact and so forth. So the interesting question is, can we formalize that? Can we put some kind of, of formalism around it, mathematical, algorithmic, etc., to, to formalize that? And those are very uh, difficult direction of research because they involve not just uh, traditional computing type of work, but it involves also concepts from social science, etc., because it has to do with human behavior as well. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I think one of Carnegie Mellon's strengths was uh, a lot of the, the cross-department collaboration, like HCI came out of that, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked with a group recently, PhD student Zishan Lakhni was uh, part of it, talking about academic papers, kind of treating it as a humanities course. And, and in fact, all three of these programmers came out of the humanities originally, sort of mm-hmm. delving into the history do you think that approaches is needed more in computer science to kind of understand the history behind it and the history of thought? Yeah, so in fact, it is so important that uh, we have a pretty uh, major university-wide project mm-hmm. on archiving, curating, and studying the history of, of development of those technologies. Things like the uh, robotics archive, the or history of computer science, those are all different threads of that, that idea. This is curated by the, uh, the libraries at CMU who mm-hmm. coordinate that, but of course with all of us in, in School of Computer Science and, and, and others. And you're right, it's very important to, um, to understand the, the path that those ideas follow and to learn from that. So that's definitely something that, we, uh, that we're doing now. And for those who are listening, HCI, Ryan, that's Human Computer Interface, right? Human Computer yeah. Interaction Institute. Yeah, Human Computer Interaction is one of our seven departments. If you really want to know the six others, and I'm going to say it anyway, <laughs> uh, one is computer science, which looks at the fundamentals of computer science, programming language, system theory, etc. HCI, as we just mentioned, Human Computer Interaction, Machine Learning, which is its own department, Language Technology, which of course nowadays is particularly important, uh, Societal uh, system, which is software engineering, cybersecurity, etc., robotics, and computational uh, computational biology, which is our most recent department. So, could talk about the uh, the most recent one, the computational biology. That's something I think we've touched on a couple times in blog posts, but we haven't seen a lot of that. So, uh, computational biology was created about fifteen years ago, first as a research center. It's basically the idea of using AI and machine learning in the context of biology research. Uh, so things like genomics, precision medicine, uh, single cell modeling, cancer research, a lot of applications, uh, a lot of applications there. The important view of that department is that it, it is not just taking AI and machine learning tools and applying them to biology inspired data. It's actually looking how we can rethink how we approach some of the key biology research challenges using those ideas. And in fact, the uh, university is uh, putting a major, CMU, uh, is putting a major emphasis on joining forces between the sciences and uh, AI and machine learning, and basically transforming how we do uh, scientific research. In fact, we are uh, building a new building, the uh, All of Sciences uh, building, which will host both in the same space, uh, biology, chemistry, traditional sciences, if you will, mm-hmm. and machine learning, computational biology, language technology in the same space. Basically fostering 
to the next level, basically, that collaboration. One of the most inspiring pieces of research that has come out in the last few years for me was uh, DeepMind's AlphaFold, where they were able to use you know these AI techniques to correctly predict the shape of all of these proteins, which according to what I read, you know, I'm no expert, would have taken a hundred years, you know, with traditional techniques. Yeah. And now having all of these, you know, uh, shapes visualized and these amazing 3D models, scientists can go out and do all kinds of drug discovery, or like you said, targeted, you know, genetic research. And that seems like one of those things where sort of the, the brute force capabilities of these large learning mm-hmm. systems has been applied to science and biology, especially in an interesting way. Yeah, it may be a little bit bold to uh, say that, but uh, we're very impressed right now by the potentially applications of generative AI and the kind of revolution they can bring. But I think we will see in the future even much, much larger transformation mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on on this uh, intersection of sciences on AI ML. And mm-hmm. what you mentioned is one example of that, but this is just a very teeny uh, starting point. I think we we will be surprised. To what extent the world will change? Oh, I'm, I'm. It's changing too fast for me already. <laughs> I don't know if I like the sound of that. I'm barely holding on as it is. Yeah, and in terms of that, um, spoke with somebody from IBM Research doing quantum computing around material states and, and simulation of nature. Does CMU do any quantum computing research? Well, in three different places, basically: School of Computer Science, uh, the College of Engineering, and in the sciences and physics. In the School of Computer Science, we uh, look more at the uh, higher level of the stack when we talk about uh, quantum computing, so uh, theory, algorithm, algorithm mm-hmm. complexity, programming languages, uh, things like this. So we do have uh, activities around that. There are uh, large activities also in the College of Engineering, looking more at the uh, physical aspects of quantum computing. Uh, so yes, we do, we do have that. To be fair, to go to the next stage, if you will, require a very large investment mm-hmm. that uh, CMU on its own uh, does not have at the, at the moment. Mm-hmm. So in your particular uh, sort of domain of robotics, you know, CMU has, has quite a history. Have there been things within the last few years or things that you, you're working on or folks are working on at your school now that you're excited about in that domain? You know, I, I saw recently an, an amazing demonstration of two small, you know, very simple robots but they have been trained, you know, in an unsupervised way to play soccer. And so, you know, just by watching, you know, these sort of agents play soccer, they had figured it out. And then they had translated that not just from, you know, a digital system where sure, but into these real world robots that could move and block and pass and shoot, you know, with the intent of getting a goal. What have you been seeing that's been inspiring for you recently? It's along the, the similar line than what you what you were saying, which is basically the idea of being able to train systems that can operate in a very wide variety of environments and tasks and be able to train them with minimal data and uh, Mm -hmm. self-supervised or minimal, I should say, minimal uh, supervision or no supervision. That's really the kind of the holy grail uh, Mm -hmm. because if we cannot do that, we are uh, basically limited by having to supervise, curate data, and it basically completely limits the adaptability of the system and so forth. Uh, so I would mention, for example, the work of uh, Deepak Pasak, who is a professor in the Robotics uh, Institute, who has shown uh, how to do learning and adaptation with uh, very little data and, and being able to adapt to a wide range uh, of conditions. So basically going in that direction 
I don't want to use the word foundation model in this context quite yet, but uh, in, <laughs> in that general direction of having general right. models, as opposed to having very specific models for different tasks and, and environment and training data. Yeah, what you say makes a lot of sense. When I was reporting about AI, you know, from, I don't know, 2015 to 2020, you know, it was always very interesting was that the models obviously could achieve amazing results like an AlphaGo, but they were, you know, sort of narrow and brittle. Like it only played Go, couldn't play checkers, you know, and if you change the rules of Go a little bit, it would be completely lost, right? And now it's the GPT systems that, you know, are kind of astounding us because from that general, that very wide general domain, they're able to do a lot of amazing things. So it would be quite interesting, as you said, if we could start to do that, but in the physical world, you know, see what comes out of that. Yeah, so that's that's the, the general direction that that we see now that is the most interesting. The other piece has to do not with the uh, robot itself, but with the interaction with, with humans. And again, the idea of being able to uh, interact with the same theme, basically, of limiting the amount of, of supervision that is needed to learn the uh, the interaction. Uh, so again, from Deepak's lab, I point you in this uh, the direction of his one of his most recent results, where the system can learn how to have a, a person control the robot with just one camera, right? No uh, fancy gloves, motion capture, 3D cameras, you know lots of gizmos and all this, just a simple camera. But the interesting thing is that that is learned entirely from completely unannotated, completely raw videos from YouTube, basically watching people and learning from watching people how to translate what uh, a motion to a robot motion, which I find mm. extraordinary, by the way, that, mm -hmm. that we now can, can do this. And this is what I meant by the Holy Grail. In other words, being able to learn a very complex tasks Right, converting my hand motion to actual uh, joint without ever using your robot for training, mm -hmm. just by right. observing human motion. Right? Yeah, if we can use all the world's YouTube videos as uh, training data, then we've we've put a lot of work in already. There you <laughs> go. Just, just get all the robots doing yoga. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, cooking uh -huh. and doing yoga. I mean, I, I think that's that's interesting because uh, you know one of the criticisms I've seen leveled against AI is that it's based on a lot of manual labor in labeling the data. Do you think we are close to a point where we can, you know, not label data, but, or is that uh, more of a distant, distant future? No, I think, I think we are close to that. And in fact, that's uh, a large portion of the work, both in, in robotics, in, in large language models, in all those different uh, areas point in that direction, right? And again, the, the progress in that uh, in that sense, is, is uh, remarkable. There is a drawback, though. There is a major drawback to this, though, which is that in the old days, so if I go back to the olden days, I, I used to do computer vision, and we used to have those very uh, carefully annotated data sets and all this. Mm -hmm. With that, you knew exactly what data you were training on. Mm -hmm. You knew exactly how the data was created, annotated, supervised, and all that. You had total control over that. Now, of course, by definition, now we don't have that, right? It's a good thing because it allows us to uh, adapt to new new tasks and environment and all this. But of course, the flip side of that is because we don't have all this information and control, we have a lot less understanding of, of what the models are, right. a lot less understanding of their, of their behavior and so forth. So that's the flip side of that. And we need to think about new ways to characterize the behavior of those, those models, right? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. There was a paper put out recently from the folks at OpenAI 
asking models, you know, as they went through a problem to explain their reasoning step by step. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they are able to vastly sort of improve their scores on these math and you know coding exams. Mm-hmm. So interesting that with self-reflection they get better, but also interesting potentially from you know the perspective of alignment that you know they're willing to explain how they work step by step. And as far as we know, they're not hiding anything from us. <laughs> this is this is another uh, aspect that is I think very interesting, and and we're just scratching the surface also which is this idea of uh, interaction between the AI system and the user. By Mm -hmm. interaction, I don't mean just, you know, I have my data, my input, I use that AI system, I get the output. That's the traditional, simple interaction. But if we look at the uh, generative AI systems, uh, ChatGPT, et cetera, that are now um, out there, the interaction is much, much closer. In fact, it's so close that there is this continuous feedback between the two systems and they work together in a way that was never done before, never this close and never this complex. So there is, a, a, I think, an entire new area, discipline, call it what you want, that will emerge around that, around basically understanding this level of interaction, optimizing, training, etc., for this and modeling this this interaction. I think we don't have really the, the tools uh, to describe what that is mm. and, and to formalize it. That's an interesting direction. Yeah, it's almost uh, applying education pedagogy to the AI, right? Because yeah. in school, in uh, you have to show your work, and you get the mm-hmm. AI to show its work. It learns better. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's interesting how uh, people. Uh, don't realize necessarily how much they they interact with with the system. And in fact, how much they drive the system towards, you know, the problem that they're actually trying to solve, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So there's this whole kind of, I don't want to use words like psychology and all this when we use AI, but (laughs) (laughs) when we talk about AI, but but this whole, you know, way of interacting that's completely new and and, and not yet fully understood. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. We want to shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and saved a little knowledge from the dustbin of history, awarded May 31st to MX0. How do I use a reserved keyword in a pedantic model? Well, if you've had this question, they've got an answer for you, earned themselves a lifeboat badge, and helped over 2,000 people by sharing a little knowledge on Stack Overflow. So we really appreciate it. I'm Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions for the show, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating and a review. really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And you can reach out to me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And I'm Marshall Hebert, the Dean of the School of Computer Science, and I would like to first thank you for uh, hosting me on this uh, on this podcast. If you want more detail about the School of Computer Science, uh, please visit www.cs.cmu.edu. Awesome. We'll put that link in the show notes. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will talk to you soon.